0: That was great. I don't know how many of you this morning walked off um, from the streets and came in and sat down at a small group table, Um, but I want you to know that we think the small groups are very important here and you are very important to your small groups. I am Deb Haygood and I want to say welcome to Women in the Word as well, join the others saying welcome to you. This is our first day of this semester of Women in the Word and we are coming as women, to study God's Word. What a great, great thing that is. Uh, I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team, along with Shelly Davis, Lynn Kitchens, Amy Foster, Vanita Jones, and Misty Denman. Thank you so much for coming. It's such a great joy for you to be here. Such a great delight. Um, I know that this first day might cause you some jitters. The first day of anything can cause you jitter. So some of you may be out there feeling a little anxious, uh, a little uncomfortable, especially if this is your first time ever to be at Women in the Word. So I don't want to embarrass you, but if it's your first time ever, will you raise your hand so we can see that and welcome you? So good, great. Thank you, thank you for coming. Um, And I I have a story for you about first aid jitters. My grandson, Dylan, is 10, almost 11, and he started fifth grade a couple of weeks ago. And he lives in the Woodlands, and in that school district, fifth and sixth grade are in a separate school called intermediate school. Now, they change classes, and they have lockers with combination locks. The teachers help them, and there's a lot of supervision, but it looks different than elementary school. So on the first day um, of school starting, I was out on my back patio praying for all the kids starting school and for my grandkids when suddenly I hear a ding, and I look down, and there I have a text on my phone. And it says, Hi, Grammy. This is Dylan. So I text back, Hi. Are you about to leave for school? I'm praying for your first day. I hope. It's great. He says, Yeah, I don't want to go back to school. And he has that emoji um, sad face. They call those emojis. (laughs) Um, So I text back, why? Um, You like summer or you're nervous? And he says both. And so I begin to text him and encourage him and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Your teachers are going to help you. You know how to do that combination lock. It's going to be great. And then I begin to talk about the summer, and he texts me back about the summer and what we enjoyed back and forth. He tells me his mom has taken his little sister to school, and she's coming back to ride her bike with him um, as they go to school, and so he text back and forth and back and forth, and then I read this. He has to go. He was supposed to be ready, and he hasn't combed his hair or put on shoes. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Just like that, I knew Dylan was no longer texting me. This sounded a whole lot like my daughter Rachel. So, I just kind of quietly set my phone down and went back to praying. This time for Dylan. So my goal today is to give you some words of encouragement and some introductory information that hopefully will dispel your jitters and cause you to be excited and want to come back next week and all the weeks of this semester. Now, if I fail um, to do that, then and you still want to run out of here screaming, please come up and talk to me. I want to know what you're thinking. Or you can text me. This semester, we're studying the tabernacle, but before we get started on that, I want to begin by talking about why we study the Word of God. Why are you here studying God's Word? Now, there's many reasons, but I think the bottom line, foundational reason, is that we want to know God better. We want to understand Him. We want to get close to Him. We want to love Him more. And the Bible is a great place to know God more intimately because this is his story, his story of love and salvation, and we are a part of it. This is God's word. It's his love letter to each one of us. Now, we don't want to get just information, as we study, just head knowledge. We want to get heart knowledge. We want um, the words of the Bible, the words of God, to go deep within us to touch our hearts, to change us, to bring us closer to him and make us more like Jesus. Now we're all on different uh, parts of our spiritual journey. Some of you have walked with the Lord for many, many, many years. Some of you are just starting your spiritual journey and you're excited about this study. And some of you um, may not have started a spiritual journey yet at all. In fact, you're here because you're curious, who is God? What is God all about? This is where um, the Word of God can answer a lot of those questions. But there's two things I want us to be aware of as we study God's Word. One, we don't want to get complacent. Now, I thought about that a lot this summer because I was reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and I came to this verse, Matthew 13, 57. And, ladies, you have an outline, hopefully, and an extra verse sheet. And this is the first verse on your extra verse sheet it says this and they took offense at him but Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household now this is Jesus talking to his disciples and they had just left Nazareth Jesus hometown and the people in Nazareth thought they knew Jesus they had seen Jesus grow up and they thought they knew all about him and so they did not believe He was the son of God. They kind of held him in contempt. It says they took offense at him. I thought, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to, I'm probably not going to have an attitude of contempt, but I don't want to have an attitude of complacency. I don't want to think, I know that. I've read that before. I've studied the tabernacle 10 times. I don't need that. The great thing is God's word is alive. And it has something new and fresh for you every time that you read it. Something new and fresh for me every time I open it up. Now the second thing that we want to be aware of is reading and studying the Bible. Is when you come to a part that seems difficult or maybe uninteresting, even boring. And so you think, I'm setting that aside. I don't understand that. I'm going to set that aside. Maybe it is a chapter. Maybe it's a whole book in the Bible. Well, I heard this story recently about this gal, and she had been given a book. And she started reading it, and she thought, this is uh, difficult. This is really sort of boring and uninteresting, and I don't think I want to read this book. And so she put it aside. Sometime later, she met the author of that book, and they fell in love, and she married him. Then when she picked up the book, all of a sudden it was interesting to her and she could not read it fast enough because now the book hadn't changed, but she had changed. She was in love with the author and she wanted to read what he had to say. She wanted to read his words. When I heard that, I thought that's like us because we are in love with the author of the Bible and we want to know what he has to say to us. So when you get to those difficult parts, just talk to him about it. and Say, Lord, what do you have for me in these verses? What do you want me to know? What are you saying to me? And that brings me to the study questions. Each week we're going to have three pages of study questions uh, that go along with the scripture that we're studying. And those are designed for you. We give those to you because we want them to help you to go deeper into the Word of God. We want uh, maybe to ask some questions that help you see something that you haven't seen before. Or maybe think about, what is the meaning of this? Or, how does this apply to my life? Now, we don't mean to make these questions difficult, but sometimes you might find one that is a little hard. Just skip it. Just skip it if you want to. Or... Ask the Holy Spirit to give you clarity and understanding of the scriptures that might give you insight into what the answer to that question might be. Now let me say, the more time you spend on the questions, the more time you're giving the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. You can take 20 minutes right before you come to Bible study and do your questions. Or maybe you might want to take a page each day and do the questions on a separate day and think about them and ponder them and pray over them. So with that said, let's go on and uh, talk about the tabernacle, the tabernacle. Um, Turn to Exodus 25, verse 8. Let's do that first. And we're going to go through uh, some questions about the tabernacle this morning that I think you might have, and hopefully I can answer for them, answer those questions um, for you. And the first one is, what is the tabernacle? What is the tabernacle? So let's read Exodus 25, 8. And this is God speaking, and he says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. God wants to dwell with the Israelites. You you might say he's moving into the neighborhood. He's going to be right in the middle, in the very center of the Israelites. He wants to dwell with them. He wants his presence to be with them. He wants to abide near his people. Tabernacle means dwelling. In fact, the word tabernacle comes from the Hebrew verb, which means to dwell. God's presence would be dwelling in the midst of his people. We are going to see some words um, this semester that refer to the tabernacle and I want to explain uh, those words and I think that will also give us some understanding of what the tabernacle is. And the first one we just read here in verse 8 is sanctuary. Sanctuary means a place of holiness and it stresses the transcendence of God. God is an exalted being who is different from his people. God is unique and distinct from every other thing in creation. He is living. He is all-powerful. He's eternal. He's the creator God. He is holy. He is transcendent. Sometimes we're going to see the tabernacle called a tent or a tent of meeting. And that word meeting there uh, doesn't mean an accidental casual meeting, but a prearranged deliberate meeting. And the word tent, that's what the tabernacle was. It was a tent. It was a movable, collapsible dwelling that could be taken down by the Israelites, moved across the wilderness, put back up again under God's direction. Um, It looked a lot like the tents of the Israelites. It had two rooms in it. It had furnishings in it. It had a front yard with a fence around it. It looked a lot like the tents of the Israelites. And that is because God wants to be in fellowship and communication with his people this emphasizes the eminence of God the eminence of God and that word eminence means that he is present and involved in our lives the holy living God of the universe wants to be in a personal relationship with me and with you Now, it can be difficult to put both of these attributes together, the transcendence of God and the eminence of God, but um, both are true and real and important, and we're going to see them both throughout this study of the tabernacle. Fourth word um, that we see, uh, title for the tabernacle, uh, is the tabernacle of testimony. Now, sometimes the two tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments written on them, we usually just call them the Ten Commandments, but they were also known as the testimony. Thomas Constable says that the Ten Commandments were the essential stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. They were the heart of the covenant relationship between God and His people. And these two tablets of the Ten Commandments the testimony, they would be placed in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's home on earth. It reminds us a little of the Garden of Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve. But when they rejected God um, through their disobedience, they were exiled from the garden. And down through the ages, there is something within us that longs to be at home with God. Now, for us as believers, we know that one day we will be home with God in glory, in heaven. And Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 tells us that um, the true tabernacle is in heaven. That tent, in fact, on your verse sheet, I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but it's Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, tells us that the true tent, the true tabernacle is in heaven. So this tabernacle on earth is really a piece of heaven on earth. Philip Ryken says that heaven is where God is. So when God came to live with his people, he brought heaven down with him. So ladies, as we study the tabernacle, it's like walking into the heart of God. Walking into the heart of God. Which brings us to our next question. Why study the tabernacle? Why should we study it? Well, we just answered it the first one right there. It's like walking into the heart of God. The awesome, transcendent God of the universe loves me and wants to be in relationship with me. And we see that truth in the tabernacle. So we study the tabernacle because it reveals the character and heart of God. Second... We study the tabernacle because we want to know how sinful, unholy, disobedient people can be in fellowship with a perfect, holy God. The tabernacle shows what was required for sinful people to meet with a holy God. The tabernacle shows a pattern of worship designed by God. God designed the tabernacle. Now, it was a great privilege and a great blessing for the Israelites to have God living in their midst. No other nation had the one true and living God living among them. But with this privilege came a great responsibility for the Israelites. Because their camp had to be a holy camp, a place where a holy God could dwell. So as we study the tabernacle, we are going to learn more about words like redemption and atonement and forgiveness and salvation. The study of the tabernacle will help you more fully understand what those concepts really mean. Third reason we study the tabernacle, it might be my favorite, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in the tabernacle speaks of either the person or the work of Jesus in the New Testament. It's amazing. It's one of the amazing things about this study. Every part of the tabernacle, every piece of furniture, every curtain, every um, everything that is made up the courtyard, the ta- it all points to different truths about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so the cool thing is every week as we look at these different parts of the tabernacle, we're going to talk about how that points to Jesus and what that means. What is that truth? And so right now I want to start by giving the first truth. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, John is talking about Jesus, who he is, and he calls him the Word. You might remember it with a capital W. That first verse says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, and I have that on your verse sheet John says this and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us when he came to earth he was living and walking among the people and then in Matthew 123, we read this. This is the angel telling Joseph that Jesus would uh, fulfill this prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Jesus came. God the Son came to earth living and dwelling among us. Jesus is the tabernacle in the New Testament. Jesus is the tabernacle. First truth we see here out of the tabernacle. But to fully understand these truths about Jesus, we need to study the tabernacle in its original context here in Exodus. What did the Israelites think and understand about the tabernacle? We want to put ourselves in their shoes, or maybe I should say their sandals, this semester— and, and see what they were thinking. What did God want them to know about themselves and about him? Those are important things that we want to know as well. And the fourth reason we study the tabernacle is because it is important. It's important. There are 50 chapters in the Bible talking about the uh, description or the rituals of the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit has much to say about the tabernacle And so, that brings us on to our next question. How did we get to this study of the tabernacle? How did we get here? In the middle of Exodus, chapter 25, how did we get to this study? So, let me say, last spring, women in the Word began a study of Exodus. But we uh, left out these 13 chapters on the tabernacle. Now, if you weren't here last spring... No worries, because I'm going to give a quick review of what we studied last semester in Exodus and kind of bring us up to date in chapter 25. As chapter 1 opened, uh, opens up in Exodus, we quickly see that it is really a continuation of the story in Genesis. And in Genesis, Abraham comes on this scene. Now, Abraham is from the line of Seth, Noah's son of blessing, and God calls Abraham to come to a new place, to Canaan. That's present-day Israel. Abraham obeys God. He listens to him. He goes to the new place. God promises Abraham three things. He says, I will make you a great nation. That means he's going to give him many descendants. And he promises him land, physical land. And God promises Abraham blessing. Not only is he going to bless Abraham and his descendants, but he tells Abraham, from you will come a blessing for the whole world. And that is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus, born of Mary, would come from the line of Abraham. So Abraham has a son Isaac. Isaac has a son Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And you might remember Jacob is renamed Israel. So it's his 12 sons and their families and descendants that make up the nation Israel. One day there's a famine in the land of Canaan, and so Jacob and his 12 sons and their families go to Egypt where there's food. Now, um, there's 70 people when they get there, and that's where we open up in the book of Exodus, and they've been in Egypt for 400 years, and they have multiplied. Their families have grown and grown until the Pharaoh is afraid of them, and so he enslaves them. In spite of Pharaoh's attempt to stop the growth, God's plan and promise to Abraham prevails, and they continue to grow in number until they are two million or more. This is the baby boom. This was a great population explosion, but they are still greatly oppressed and worked ruthlessly as slaves to the Egyptians. God sees their plight. He hears their cries. And this is when Moses comes on the scene. Now, I'm not going to talk about Moses' life. But let's start here with he goes to Midian. He flees Egypt. And then um, God calls out to him from a burning bush. And he says to him, I will deliver my people. Go, Moses, and take my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So, after some debate or maybe much debate, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, no. In fact, I'm going to make things harder for the Israelites, and he does, and their suffering is intensified greatly, and so Moses goes back to God, confused and despairing, and says to God, what is going on? What are you doing here? And so God answers him with some marvelous verses in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. And we're going to read um, verse 6 first. And it says this on your verse sheet. God speaking. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This begins a chain of events with God totally in control. And we see God's power and plan in the ten miraculous plagues. Pharaoh finally says, go, go, Moses, take the Israelites and go. And so they do, and then Pharaoh changes his mind once again. He's done this over and over with the plagues, and he sends his armies out after them. And again we see God's miraculous power at work, his redeeming power as the Israelites walk through the Red Sea on dry land because God has rolled back the waters. And then when the Egyptian armies get in the middle, the waters roll back on top of them. And next we see God's love and provision as he supplies the Israelites with food and water as, they, as he directs them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, we begin the second half of Exodus. Now, the first half of Exodus, that's what we just read in Exodus 6, six. It is God redeeming and rescuing his people from slavery and bringing them into freedom to follow and worship God. The second half is God's desire to be in a covenant relationship with his people. That is the second half. Part of what he says in Exodus 6. Look at verses 7 and 8. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God desires to be in a covenant relationship with his people. And we see that begin in chapter 19 when he tells Moses, I have another verse here, to tell the people this, Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. And he goes on to say that they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in chapter 20, God gives um, Moses the Ten Commandments for the people. This is the Decalogue or the testimony that we just talked about. It is the prologue for the book of the covenant. Now, this book contained the laws and the statutes that God gave the Israelites through Moses. They were laws to help them remember who God is and to worship him. And there were also laws to um, govern and to teach them how to treat one another and how to treat strangers so that they might live in peace and harmony. These are chapters 20 through 23. And then we come to chapter 24. And Moses gathers all the people, and he builds an altar, and he sacrifices an oxen, and he has 12 pillars out to represent the 12 tribes. All the people come, and then we read in Exodus 24, 7. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. We will be obedient. And so, chapter 24 comes to an end with Moses taking two um, blank chiseled tablets up the mountain where he will be for 40 days and 40 nights. And that brings us to chapter 25. Because now, on the mountain, God is going to give Moses the second part of this covenant relationship, and that is the tabernacle. And so, let's, uh, we're going to look at verse 9, because we're going to uh, talk about how M- Moses knew about the tabernacle. How did God instruct Moses to build this tabernacle? And so, verse 9 tells us this. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God shows Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. He shows him the pattern for the tabernacle. He's going to give him lots of details, lots of instructions in chapters 25 through 31. But he also shows Moses the pattern. We're going to look at many, many details over the next um 11 weeks, and um, you might think you've never seen so many details, but then you're going to realize that even though we have many details, we don't have every detail. And I tell you this because I want you to know, when you see pictures of the tabernacle, of the furnishings, like the golden lampstand or the veil, they might look a little different because these are different artists' renderings of what they read in Exodus. But Moses got it exactly right. The tabernacle in Exodus was built exactly right because Moses was given a picture of the tabernacle. He saw the blueprint for the tabernacle. Even though we don't have every detail, I want us to remember that we have enough detail to learn about God. Because, remember, God specifically designed the tabernacle um, structure and all its furnishings to teach the Israelites about himself and how they, as sinful people, could have a relationship with him, their holy God. The tabernacle and the courtyard are laid out in such a way as to teach the way of salvation. So be looking for that in the weeks ahead. So let's go back now and look at verse 1 and see what is the first thing that God tells Moses about uh, the tabernacle. So let's look. We're going to start with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel. That they take for me a, to, a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. First thing God tells Moses is take up an offering. Take up an offering. Let everyone contribute to this building project. But there's a contingency there. He says, let everyone whose heart moves him, God wants them to give willingly. And when we give willingly, generosity follows. And the Israelites do give generously. We're going to read that um, in a few weeks in chapter 35. In fact, they give so generously that Moses has to say, stop, don't bring any more supplies. We have everything we need for the tabernacle. They gave generously. And it reminds me of a friend who's gone on to be with the Lord that used to say to me, my life motto is, be as generous as you can be. That's what she wanted to remember. And I think that's an application for you and I as we read these passages. Be as generous as you can be. Give willingly. I love that Katie talked about Port Arthur and Houston and along the coast. We have seen such an outpouring of people giving of their time and their resources and their efforts and their money. And I've heard more than once on the TV that um, institutions of faith or faith-based places or people of faith have been going out and doing this work. And I think that's so wonderful. God is getting the glory in that. So let's read on and see what exactly they were to contribute. And I love this part because this is exactly how we start a project. We get everything we need. You know, if we're going to make a dress, we get the pattern. I look at the instructions. I cut out the pieces. I get my material. I make sure I have thread that matches. I get my sewing machine and my scissors. We get everything ready, all that we need to start the project. And that's what God is doing here. So verse 3 says, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. First three things we see, precious metals. Where did they come from? Stay tuned, because we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But I will tell you this, that the closer furnishings and things are to God, they're gold. And the farther out you get from God, they're bronze. Okay, next verse 4. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen and goat's hair. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. We're going to see those colors over and over again in the next 11 weeks. And I love to think what they might represent to the Lord and this goat's hair um, that we read here, um, some think that this was coarse goat hair, which is still used as coverings in the tents in the Middle East today. Some others think that this might be a fine, silky Angora goat hair. One of those details that we don't have. Um, and then, verse five, it says tanned ram skins, goat skins, and acacia wood. Now, let me say, um, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Some of you may have other translations out there of the Bible. And so yours might read, ramskins dyed red. Now maybe when you tan the ramskins, it's like dyeing them red. I think that is a great uh, thing to think about though, great application, what that might represent, red ramskins. The next thing you see there is goat skins. That's in the ESV. Yours might say badger skins or maybe it says the hide of sea cows. Now, um, there's some differing opinions on what this word means. I like the thought about sea cows because I grew up in Miami and so I know all about sea cows. We call them manatees and they are a large mammal that live in the ocean. And they were very plentiful in the Red Sea, which was close by to where the Israelites were camping. Could have been the hides from sea cows. Next we see the acacia wood. Now there were many acacia trees in the Sinai Peninsula where they were encamped. And so this wood is very sturdy and it would be good for a construction project. Then we go on in verse 6, and it says, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. You know, if they didn't have much, if they didn't have um, a lot, they could bring oil for the lamps, or they could bring spices, or they could go to cut down an acacia tree and bring the wood. And then finally we read in verse 7, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. We're going to talk in a few weeks about the ephod and the breastplate. Those are part of the garments for the priests. And these precious stones are going to go on them. So some were asked to bring these gemstones. 14 items here that they were to bring to the Lord, their contributions. And I think that's pretty amazing. These 14 items would be all that they would need to build the tabernacle. Be looking for these different items over the next weeks to come. Okay, I want to take a few more minutes here and talk about um, kind of the diagram of the tabernacle to put a picture in your head. Um, And so if we can put that slide up. And uh, I wanna talk about the different parts of the tabernacle and the order that we're gonna study them in. I hope this helps you. Okay, here is a diagram of the tabernacle. Let me see if I can get my little thing to work here. All right, I don't know. you guys see it? I'm sort of blind. Okay, this smaller rectangle and, uh, at the end here, this is uh, the tabernacle. This is the tent. And you see this little room, it says Ark in it. That is the Holy of Holies. And that's what we're going to study first. The Holy of Holies where uh, that held the Ark of the Covenant. And that held the Ten Commandments. We're going to start there because this is where... God would dwell right here in the Holy of Holies. And so God is at the center. This is the heart of his home on earth. So we're going to begin with God at the center. Because that's where we want God in our lives, at the center of our lives. Because the truth is, ladies, we may not see it or realize it. But God is at the center of everything that goes on. So that's where we want God, right in the center of our life. So we're going to start with the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant next week. And then we're going to move on to the holy place. Can you guys see that? That is this next room here. And we're going to look at two pieces of um, furnishing in there. The table of showbread and the golden lampstand, bread and light. I think we can see some applications to that already. And then third, we're going to look at the structure. How is this tabernacle made? It's got boards and uh, ceiling and roof and curtains and drapes. We're going to look at that. And we're going to look at the veil. And that's the line that um, separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. That line there is a beautiful woven veil. We're going to look at that. Then next we will study the altar of incense that's right in front of of the veil then we're going to move out into the courtyard that's the courtyard and it was um, surrounded by beautiful linen fence that was held up by posts on the east side down here on the right this was where there was a beautiful curtain it was the door it was the one and only way to get into the courtyard one door one way to get into the courtyard. First thing you would see uh, when you entered would be the altar of burnt offering, and that's where they would bring their sacrifices. And then behind that, you see the bronze laver. That is uh, really a basin that held water where the priests could wash their hands and feet before they entered the tabernacle. And that brings us to chapters 28 and 29, where God gives Moses the institution of the priesthood. Um, Aaron would be the first high priest. And all the high priests after that would come from the line of Aaron. Now Aaron was Moses' brother. They were from the tribe of Levi. And so the tribe of Levi would be the priestly tribe. Now the priests had two jobs. The first job was to serve in the tabernacle and to represent the people before God. Their second task was to represent um, God to the people and that um, they would do that by teaching them the law and helping them to obey it and by the way ladies we are also called a holy priesthood that's on your verse sheet in first peter 2 5 it says you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and that brings us to, and, and our task, by the way, is to represent God to people out there. And also, we can intercede for people to God. That brings us to chapter 31. These are all the instructions of the tabernacle. And the 40 days are complete. And Moses is walking down the mountain. But something very wrong has happened in the camp while he was gone. Now, that story is in chapters 32, 33, and 34. We studied that last semester, so I quickly want to just remind us of that story. Um, While Moses was gone, there were some people in the camp that became, some Israelites, that became impatient. And they thought, hey, where's Moses? When's he coming back? We don't know. So they go to Aaron and they say, hey, we need a God to go before us. Make us a God. And so Aaron, I still to this day don't understand it, fashions them a golden calf. And they begin to offer sacrifices to it and worship it. And they begin to drink and party and revel and sing. And it's really like a giant orgy going on among some of the Israelites. And as Moses is walking down the mountain, he sees this and he hears this. And he is furious. And he throws down those ten tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. He's angry. And God says he is going to turn away from the Israelites. And so Moses intercedes for the Israelites before God. He says, God, these are your people. You've just rescued them from the Egyptians. Go with us. Stay with us. We need your presence. These are your people, Lord. And so God, in his mercy, says, I will go with you. And we read that in Exodus 33, 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The covenant is renewed. Uh, Moses goes back up the mountain for 40 more days and nights. And he takes with him two more blank tablets. God writes the Ten Commandments on them. And when he comes down this time, chapter 35, Moses tells the people... Everything that God has told them about the tabernacle. He gives them the blueprint of the tabernacle that God has instructed him in chapters 25 through 31. And then in chapters 35 through 40, we see the people begin to construct the blueprint. They begin to uh, build the tabernacle and the... Um, the seamstresses are sewing and the weavers are weaving and they're building the tabernacle until we come to um, the completion in chapter 40. So, this is important, ladies. I want you to remember this because this is going to help your study. Chapters 25 through 31 are the blueprint. 25 through 31, God giving Moses instructions, the blueprint. Chapters 35 through 40, building. The blueprint constructing the blueprint we're going to study those together and it will help you to remember that and we come to chapter 40 and the tabernacle is complete god's presence dwells his glory is there and i have a final um, picture for you to see beautiful god dwelling in their midst And that brings us back to where we started with Exodus 25, 8, build me a sanctuary and I will live among them. So what is our response to be as we study the tabernacle this semester? First, I think we need to look for God revealing himself in this study of the tabernacle. Second, look for the connections between the tabernacle in the Old Testament um, and Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Look for those connections. And third, get ready, ladies, as we study the tabernacle, to praise and worship God as he draws you close to his heart. I hope I see you next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are holy. And yet you love us, Lord. You love us and you want to be near us. Father, thank you so much for this study of the tabernacle. Thank you for your word, Lord, that shows us who you are, shows us how much that you love us. And Father, we want to love you and worship you and praise you all the more. Bless these women that have come, Father. I pray you would open their hearts and their minds to understand everything that you have for him and we know, for us. We know that that will happen, Lord, because you are a great and mighty and good God. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.